This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. I'm sorry to be starting this week's open country in such a breathless state, but I am climbing up a very steep hill. And the climb I know will be worth it, because from the top I will get the most spectacular view of the surrounding countryside. And uh, in a way, the top is the only place that you can get a true understanding of what the landscape is like that I'm climbing up and what lies below. So... I just have the last little bit to do. You feel the temperature dropping a little bit as you get to this summit. It's not the top of the highest, most dramatic hill in the British Isles, but it has its own special qualities. For these are the Malvern Hills, and I've walked to the top of what's known as the British Camp. And I've come here to the summit to meet George Demidovich. George... Hello. Now, you must have climbed up a while ago because you you're not out of puff like I am. No, it's, uh, it's always a good climb up here, and it's, um, but lots of people come. I mean, I even little toddlers make it in the end. I know, I was a bit embarrassed by that <laughs> the way I'm... But here we are, the middle of the Malvern Hills. Yes. And it's from here that we get a panoramic 360-degree view stretching 40 miles on either side of us. Yes. Yes. So tell me a little bit about where I am and what lies ahead of us. Well, you're on the, the British camp. It's also called the Herefordshire Beacon. It's one of the largest uh, Iron Age hill forts in the country and most impressive. It's in your face. It's a monument, an earthwork, which is difficult not to see. It's huge and massive and the, and the banks and ditches are enormously deep. And you could imagine why any leader would set a fort here because they can see the enemy from far away. It's a marvellous viewpoint, but we're starting to rethink why Iron Age hill forts were built. They're, they're obviously defensive, but we're thinking now that the tribal lords, the tribal leaders, needed status symbols like all lords do. And part of the function of Iron Age hill forts is a symbol of authority. And that's one of the reasons they're built so deep and impressive. Well, I'm in such good company with you, George, because you're a landscape historian. You've yes. been doing this for many, many years, and yes. you know everything about what we stand upon and the landscape that lies below. This beautiful, fertile, gently undulating landscape of Herefordshire. Herefordshire and, and Worcestershire, uh -huh. Shropshire, uh, Radnorshire, and... Uh, it was, On the other side of and, the top uh, And that's Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. You must never tire of this place. You never tire. Never it, tire. Is it because of the surrounding landscape or the history that's below our feet? It's the landscape, which appears to be natural, but is very much man-made. And that's what I've been studying all my life and trying to find all the different layers that you can find in the landscape. Here, the landscape is obvious. This is a huge Iron Age hill fort, but there are much more subtle aspects of the landscape on the hills to the north. And definitely sculpted by man back then. By man, by they man. built their deep ditches and then ramparts. Yes, in fact, some of the ditches are so deep that you get down to the bedrock. 
When did you first become engrossed with the Malverns? With the Malverns? Oh, um, I, I was born in Coventry and uh, my father came to this country, he's Polish, came to this country after the war as a refugee. But I was very much interested in geography and history and I persuaded him to come to the Malverns. Now, you have explored these hills and you came across quite an interesting discovery which has helped tell a bit more of the history of yeah. the Malverns. So... Yes, so here the earthworks are obvious. There are more subtle marks made by man on the hills which I was able to discover not long ago. Should we go there? Yes. I'm out of puff again. Anyway... <laughs> So another grand walk up the side of another of the, the peaks of the Malvern. So where are we, George? We're on the northern flank of the Worcestershire Beacon. We just walked up from West Malvern. And there are, as I look across here, lots of paths. Some are, you know, gravel and stone. Others are where the grass has been cropped. But you're seeing something else. Yes. One of the reasons I came here is to walk on the hills, because I love hill walking. So coming out daily on my daily constitutional, um, I suddenly noticed that there were banks and ditches crossing the line of the ridge. There is on the ridge something called the Red Earls Ditch or the Shire Ditch, which runs along the ridge and it's massive. Along, along the length? The ridge, along the length. Of the Mulverns, but right. But these ditches, much smaller, were going at right angles. So I was going humpity bump over the ditches. I thought, what are these? I'd read about the creation of the King's Thirds by Charles I. What Charles I did, because he was anxious to get finance and he couldn't go to Parliament because he did not get on with Parliament at all, he decided to try to get some income out of his rights. Now, on the Malvern Chase, he had the right to take uh, the venison and vert, which is the deer and the vegetation and the trees. He had the right over the whole chase to do that. The way he could get some income out of that right was to do a deal. If I take, I, Charles I, take one third and enclose it, which I can then sell and lease and get some money, two thirds is yours for the commoners <laughs> to use, but I, I relinquish my right to the, to the deer and the trees on the two thirds. Uh -huh huge opposition but eventually it was all agreed because we're talking about enclosing enclosing a piece of the landscape. enclosing what was yeah. ancient common so yeah. it was a lot of resistance mm. to it but it, it, it did happen because the traces in the landscape what was the ditch for it basically is a boundary marker these were the king's Thirds ditches laid out in 1632 by king charles the first found by the son of a polish refugee <laughs> <laughs> yes it is a strange story yes <laughs> The Malverns have inspired one of England's most famous composers. I'm Stuart Freed and I'm Vice Chairman of the Orgar Society. And Edward Elgar spent a lot of his life in this, this area, around the Malverns. How much of an inspiration were the Malverns in the works of Elgar? 
Oh, I think Elgar was inspired by the countryside. He lived in many places in and around the Morvans. Wherever he resided, he always looked out for where he could go for long walks. And it's been said that much of his music is actually written at walking pace. So do you have a picture in your head of him you know, treading through this landscape with beats of music in his mind that he would later come to write down? Oh, I think there's no doubt that that is what happened. Pomp and circumstance is going through my mind and I'm thinking, that has quite a good walking beat to it, but not going up the steep slopes of where we are now, for I have come back to British camp. And Stuart and I are sitting down looking out across Worcestershire. Tell me a little bit more about this connection, his connection with the landscape. How significant was this spot? Well, this spot has a very special place in the hearts of all Elgarians. The British camp was where Caractacus allegedly fought off the Romans, and Elgar's mother, Anne, suggested to him that he write something about that story, and the result was the cantata Caractacus. And does it recount the alleged story of, of him holding back that invasion of the Romans? Oh, of holding it back, of being captured, taken to Rome, and actually celebrated as a war hero. Where did he physically do his writing? Was it indoors, outdoors? It's quite clear that he did his writing in as much as he was writing it down at the piano. There's the story of the Enigma Variations where he was basically fooling around on the piano and uh, Alice, his wife, said to him, that's a good tune, what is it? And he said, well, I, I don't know, but maybe something could be made of it. And what resulted was, of course, I suppose, Elgar's greatest hit. The Enigma Variations. The Enigma Variations, indeed. Elgar would not be the composer that we know without the views that we're witnessing now. I'm absolutely convinced of that. To quote Elgar himself, the trees are singing my music, or have I sung theirs? Mm. Well, I wonder which it was. Mm, it's lovely that, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. The Malverns is a place that doesn't just inspire musicians like Elgar. It has inspired authors like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien because of this very landscape. But there's another really fascinating element in that it seems to be a place which inspires invention and, and scientific innovation. And there is a terrific example of that. When you walk through Malvern or when you go up the country lanes that go into the hills, there's a collection of beautiful Victorian gas lamps. Sometimes they're very ornate, sometimes they look like twisted barley sugar, and then on the top you have this glass lantern. Well, there has been a need to bring these lamps into the 21st century, and I'm going to meet the people who have made that happen. And by one of these lampposts, this particular one, it's painted green like many of them, but it's got lovely sort of ornate collars around it, so you look up its length. And at the top, on a ladder, is Lynn Jones. Hello. Hi. <laughs> You're head level with the, the lantern. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do? 
Well, this lamp needs servicing. The gas is on all the time at the moment. So you can see the two mantles at the top are glowing. And as soon as I unplug it, the gas is turned off and I can lift the burner out. It needs servicing, it needs cleaning up. Do you want to come down and tell me a little bit more about it? Yes, I'll come okay. down. You have a very special title here. Yeah. So just tell me what it is. Well, I'm the world's first and only, I believe, female gas lamp technician. So <laughs> there might be more now, but there weren't. You were I the first got qualified. Yeah. Um, how many lamps are there, gas lamps altogether? Well, there are 104 in Malvern, and I first knew them down a little lane in, in Malvern Wells. There was a whole line of them, and they were black and thick with gas and looked like sort of weird torches standing, you know, when it snowed. It, it, was, it was beautiful. They date yeah. back to when, Lynn, roughly? Well, 100 years ago. Yeah. And what you're doing with the lamps is part of a wonderful story about saving these very distinctive architectural features which are obviously in the town of Malvern but they, yeah. they come up into the hillsides here where we yeah. are now and they were in danger of being lost altogether. Yeah, well the problem was that they were very, very expensive to run, they weren't maintained, they weren't coming on and off properly. Why did you want to save the gas lamps? Well, people in Malvern were really passionate about them. We had lots of discussions about how we could renovate them. They, they just enhanced the countryside. Instead of having a sodium light, which makes everything sort of into orange sludge, as soon as you have a, a gas lamp there, then suddenly everything springs to light and you do have natural colour. They are really special things. Yeah, I love them. And it's connected with this landscape. It's connected with C.S. Lewis and Narnia. And was he inspired by one of these atmospheric gas lamps? It is the wonderful story of the tales of Narnia. And the children find themselves in that huge wardrobe. And at the back of the wardrobe is Narnia, full of snow. And there's a lovely gas lamp twinkling away. Between the dark tree trunks, she could still see the open doorway of the wardrobe. She began to walk forward crunch, crunch over the snow and through the wood towards the other light. In about ten minutes, she reached it and found it was a lamppost. And this is how Malvern is. Malvern's just another Narnia. <laughs> and wondering what to do next, she heard a pitter-patter of feet coming towards her. This is the land of Narnia, said the fawn. How do you know that these gas lamps were the ones that inspired C.S. Lewis? Well, the story is that it started snowing and he saw the gas lamp twinkling away and there was Narnia laid out before him. So you've been servicing them, but you've also been involved in the restoration of the lamps themselves. I've always been really interested in anaerobic digestion, so that is uh, organic matter being put into a container and it gives off gas as it sort of melts down. And so we decided to have a go at having a gas lamp attached to something that produced the gas and hey presto <laughs> we are actually running that now <laughs> right so if we continue further up the hill here we can meet brian harper who has been one of the sort of the leaders in this uh, this reinvention of the gas yeah lamp. that's right yeah <laughs> let's go meet him and here it is. This is the lamp, the gas lamp, which is very different from all the others. So you've got the green pillar. Yes, you've got the lantern on the top. But down below it, you have this green painted contraption of buckets and tubs. And to explain exactly what this is all about is Brian Harper. You are 
you're an inventor. Explain to me what it is and how it works. It's a little off the wall, but basically the idea is to make biogas to run the gas light with. Biogas from what? That's the point. It makes biogas from dog poo. So the real purpose of the project is to sort the dog poo problem out that we have in the UK. Yeah, hanging from branches as you're That's doing it. your walk through the countryside. And it's absolutely horrible. We're so fortunate to live on a dog route here. OK. And you have one of the gas lamps on this dog route. That's right. Okay. And I need you to explain to me how you convert that poo into what's going to give a golden glow from the lamp. OK. Explain it. First of all, people have to pick up a bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... You cannot use a plastic bag. So we have a very nice paper bag in a free dispenser here. When you need to use it, you unfold it and then you scoop it off the ground. And there's cardboard flaps that help you get under the poo. They act as shovels and that then flips upwards and pops the poo into the bag, which is waxed paper. And then you take that back to the biodigester and all you do is open up this top, mm-hmm. drop, the, drop bag in. the bag inside, close that um, and then... This handle here at the front? Yes, you might as well turn it. If you turn that five times anti-clockwise, you are turning it clockwise. Anti-clockwise. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> That's an auger and it pushes the bag, breaks open the bag and pushes it into the biodigester. And through a series of chemical reactions, we get out of it methane and carbon dioxide. So you get the gas into there, and then how do you get it to your lamp? Well, it's then piped from that uh, up the column, and it goes into the same uh, lantern as you've just been hearing about, except this one is especially modified to run from biogas, and it makes dog poo have a use. Without this new thinking about these lamps in the landscape, they would have disappeared. Eventually, yes, they they would go. This is a landscape that is quite... A history of science and research and innovation, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, very much so. I I started life here as a government research scientist on night vision. Um, We have a large establishment, uh, defence establishment here. It's an inspirational place to work from. Um, So we we have a great deal of um, deep-thinking people, scientific people, and a great sprinkling of artistic uh, types as well. And you think that's got to do with the landscape? Oh, very much so. It's, it's, it's the inspiration you get from it. As well as being a source of creative inspiration, the Malverns, well, there's something else that springs from here, literally springs from the ground. That gentle trickle of water is a characteristic of the Malverns, a natural spring. This particular one is enclosed inside a small building. There's a stone trough in front of it. And I'm here with Mike Hum. This Water is such an important part of your life, isn't it? The story of it, what you've done with it. It's a natural spring which which has never ran dry, no matter what drought we've had. And there are a lot of springs across the Malverns. Where we are now, this is Holy Well. Yeah, Um, 
The history of the water goes back to 1558, when Elizabeth I, who was on the throne, granted the rights of the water to the Lord of the Manor, providing he gave rest and refreshment to travellers. The earliest bottling on record is 1644. And when Schweppes came into it in 1850, they built the building, and part of the building were these two public rooms, which still to this day gives the rest and refreshment. So should we step outside yeah, and sure. have a look at, at the actual building itself? Because there's this beautiful archway door, the windows are edged with red brick. It's a copy of uh, buildings that were in Baden-Baden in Austria or Germany. Schweppes built it. In 1851, they launched Malvern Water and they bottled here until about 1898 and they found that the supply was not enough. So they moved across the hill to Cobble Village in Herefordshire and they built a, a plant there. They did something like in their heyday, something between 11 and 16 million litres a year. Mm. I do 250,000. Yeah, so uh, a much smaller scale. Yeah. Coca-Cola bought the plant in about 2005, bought out Sweeps, and in 2010, Coca-Cola, much to the dismay of everybody in Malvern, shut the plant, and they moved it all up north and shut down. It was gone. I think it was because I'd opened in 2009, and they couldn't stand the competition. <laughs> <laughs> Hence, you had to change your name slightly, so you're Holy Well, Malvern Springwater. Yeah. How did you come to be involved in the bottling of Springwater? Oh, by accident, really. Accident. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a long story, but my wife ran a hotel in town in, in Malvern and uh, she wanted to buy a, a cottage on the hills. And that's the cottage there, Holywell Cottage. Mm -hmm. She rang the estate agent, he said, oh, there's this and that. And, and he said, and now the well. And my wife thought he was talking about a hole in the garden, you know, in the ground. And she said, the well. And, and he said, yeah, man, I mean, there's a great big. Victorian building next door to the cottage that is the holy well <laughs> and it's in the sale it was pretty much derelict and it needed doing up so you had excuse me you've got a little bug I do it's a little sort of bronze beetle isn't that lovely <laughs> yeah. look at that I'll just put it on the flowers so you bought the property not knowing there was a well but you've made it part of your life now, your yeah, business. Yeah, well, subsequently, yeah. Building on what was already established by Schweppes in a way. This is the original Malvern water. It's quite something, isn't it? From something so ancient and so part of the landscape, you are bottling it and sending it far and wide. Yeah. And people who are out walking in the Malverns, under the regulation of Queen Elizabeth I, yeah. are allowed to partake of the water. Yeah, yeah. You must meet all sorts of folk. Yeah. <laughs> if we yeah, just course, go in. Yeah. And then this is beautiful archway that takes you to this trough at the back. And the water is trickling through this lovely tile work and into this basin below. Have a glass. Here we go. And this one. Here we go. Crystal clear. Here it goes. Ooh. That has filtered down through <laughs> millions and millions of year old rock to fill my glass. I've walked up the slopes behind the town of Malvern and I want to do this because I think 
this whole experience would be incomplete. You see, I've tasted the waters and I've seen the, the visible marks that human history has left on the land. If I wanted to, I could switch on my phone and find a piece of Elgar to play. But I can't go, I really can't go without seeing these gaslights burst into life. So I'm standing in a wooded area and <laughs> there's midges and the occasional bat circling above the trees and I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait. <gasps> and there they are. Oh, they're so pretty. Soft golden pools of light. They are illuminating my path now. And this, in a way, completes my picture of this remarkable landscape. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more Open Countries, there are programmes going back to 2009 available on the BBC Radio 4 Open Country website.